Welcome back along to the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela, and I want to start off this episode by thanking God for the safe and healthy delivery of my first child into the world. Caleb was born this past Friday, and my wife and I are now experiencing the joys and pure terror uh, that is being first-time parents. I uh, know it's actually really wonderful. We're just trying to get into our routines, um, so I'm a little sleep-deprived. Uh, but I had about half of this episode done uh, when he was born and just wanted to get it out there for you all. Now, before I get to the show, I also want to mention a podcast that I was recently interviewed on. Some of you may remember Nick Peters, who I interviewed two episodes ago. Well, he returned the favor, and there is about a two-hour interview that you can find on Deeper Waters podcast, uh, which you can stream from deeperwaters.ddns.net, or you can download it from iTunes. We discussed everything from David McAfee to Peter Bogosian, faith to atheism, uh, the historical Jesus, and doing an apologetics podcast. Deeper Waters is one of my favorite podcasts because Nick covers just a ton of interesting topics, and he gets some pretty incredible guests on there as well. And no, that isn't a reference to me, but to people like uh, Paul Meyer, uh, Daniel Wallace, and so many others. So make sure to give that episode a listen, as well as go through some of his back catalog. Well, with that said, let us continue on with our current series. This small section is going to take up probably three to four episodes, so we're really in it for the long haul. So let's get on with the show dealing with the question, doesn't the Bible endorse slavery? as we continue our series on Bible atrocities. He knows there's no end to his suffering, and that is suffering itself, just to know that there will never be a time when hell will turn him loose. The Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with fire and brimstone, and the thousands of poles of sulfur, and the burnt buildings, and the burnt suffixes, and the burnt cigarette confirmed that, yes they were. He is in a horrible place. Horror like horror has never been known. Let the horror of knowing that you're going to burn forever flood through your soul. I mean, they're just, they're animals. And it's funny because sometimes these sodomite activists, these queer activists, will sometimes say things like, oh, but you know, it's natural faster action because the animals do it. And I always say this, well, you know, I've always said that you guys were animals. So, you know, you're just proving my point right now. Let the horror to know that you're in a dark pit and you'll never have relief from that. That is hell enough for you and hell enough for anyone. Before I begin this mini-series on the depiction of slavery or servitude within the Bible, I wanted to remind us of where we had come in the previous episode, dealing with the anti-theistic and atheistic indignation about God and the Bible, and how to adequately and accurately understand the concepts of God, humanity, sin, judgment, and redemption found therein. We noted that when the atheist wants to express some moral indignation about some act or command of God in the Bible, they are actually floating downstream and at risk of running aground on a shoal on either side. The first error that they must avoid is that their moral indignation betrays an inconsistent view of what morality, that is, moral values and duties, actually are in the first place. On naturalism, grounding any real objective moral values in any meaningful way is highly dubious at best and downright impossible at worst. 
I tend towards the latter, but give the benefit of the doubt that maybe someone, somewhere, someday will be able to devise a robust and defensible naturalistic theory of objective morality, even though I don't think that it's, it hasn't been done yet, and I'm not sure that it is even conceptually possible. Now, part of that is because that most naturalistic theories go into some type of consequentialism or subjectivism or uh, ethical relativism or, or something along those lines, uh, which really just dissolve into nihilism. But that's another episode in itself. The error on the other side of the bank of the river that they must steer clear of is that this objection actually functions as an internal critique. This means that it has the basic formula, if you are going to really spell it out, that's something like, quote, assuming that God exists and the events of the Bible happened, then God is evil for doing or commanding whatever. Uh, the reason that this is so difficult to defend for the atheists is because when they make this kind of objection, they must make it with respect to the biblical concepts and on their own terms. They can't escape, though they almost always try once their attack is pretty easily turned back, by watering down the concepts, selecting or ignoring them to suit their desired conclusions, or by appeal to the tired old rhetoric that the burden of proof rests with the theist to prove that God exists, as if we were unable to demonstrate the existence of God in the first place, or that if we aren't, it means that any and every statement by atheists about God, the Bible, theology, history, science, religion, or whatever, are left as paragons of unassailable reason. It is the atheists that are claiming that there is a real moral contradiction between the concept of an all-loving God and the God we see described in the Bible. Now, one of those issues is the issue of slavery or servitude. Atheists will often criticize Christians for quote-unquote quote cherry-picking uh, passages from the Bible to obey that they like while ignoring the difficult passages uh, or morally questionable ones that they don't like. Why do you accept the passages that condemn homosexuality but you still eat pork, for example? In this article series, I'm not going to be addressing that claim directly, that claim about cherry-picking, though I have elsewhere. But I'm going to be showing that to a large degree, other criticisms of the Bible made by atheists frequently rely on their own type of cherry-picking and heavy-handed, hyper-literalistic treatment of biblical passages, of ancient Near Eastern history, and often complete and total ignorance of original languages, ancient Near Eastern literature, society, culture, context, and so many other features uh, that we would want to use in an academic study. In particular, I am going to be responding to the oft-declared critique that the Bible condones slavery and what that would mean for the Christian. Now, before I start, I, I would also like to note that the purpose of this series is not to endorse or really even defend some version of the doctrine of inerrancy, though I do hold such a view, and it's not going to rely on such a view as an assumption of the arguments made in this episode, or in any of the episodes to follow. I'm not attempting to argue or defend the historical point that the Jews, as a unified people, were oppressed in Egypt for 400 years, sometime between 1400 and 1200 BCE, that they were miraculously spared by the hand of God from Pharaoh, that they were brought out of Egypt in mass and miraculous exodus, uh, received the Torah from the hand of God at Sinai, or any other such events. 
I'm not going to be arguing for an earlier or later date for the composition of the text, or even that the texts have been handed down reliably to us through history. While I think all of these can be reasonably argued for and defended, and again have done so elsewhere, the purpose of this episode, and the others that follow continuing this section on slavery and servitude, is merely to elucidate what it is that the biblical authors in their historical contexts were and were not commending or condoning within the biblical texts insofar as we have them transmitted to us today. Now, it is because I know that many responses to this series will come in this kind of form of diversion that I wanted to state from the outset that my intention is not to argue for or support any of those kinds of positions. By the same token, then, the atheist cannot say something like that unless I can prove that God exists or that the Bible is inspired or that the historical narratives presented are accurate, then their objections go through. This is not at all the case. All of those positions I stated could be false, and the atheist objection could still be an invalid, amateurish, unresearched, slapdash objection that doesn't do anything to prove its case. And we must remember, again, this objection is in the form of an internal critique, so the historical nature of the narratives and the existence of God in the Bible uh, and the biblical concepts of God, man, sin, fall, etc., are granted for the sake of argument and available for me, the Christian, to use in my response. Once that is done and the tension of the objection is relieved and shows that there is no actual contradiction, the atheist may wish to then say, well, you still have not yet proven that God exists or that the Bible is true. And that's perfectly fine. I wasn't trying to do that. What it does mean is that this certain objection about the immorality of the Bible, quote unquote, condoning slavery, is defeated. Now, you may be listening to this and at the end realize that what we mean by slavery today isn't what the Bible is talking about, but still have other issues with it and still reject it. And again, that's fine. We could discuss those as a later date uh, should anyone message me something to discuss. But the case will have still been made that the normal, flat, flaccid, effete, and sophomoric objection as it is commonly presented is a total bust. Now we're going to begin by exploring the ancient Near Eastern slave culture, which does include ancient Israel, as compared to the New World African slavery. And then we're going to move into handling specific casuistic or case law in the Old Testament regarding the legal restraints on slavery, what were the roles around slaves and masters or servants and lords, and how the Old Testament stood out when compared to its other ancient Near Eastern counterparts. Due to the fact that this kind of atheistic objection will often quickly migrate to blaming New World slavery on Christianity and the Bible, because don't you know all slavery was justified by appeal to the Bible, or whatever, I'm going to end this mini-series by showing that had the West actually followed the various laws found in the Old Testament regarding servanthood, it would have categorically and universally been opposed to the kind of slavery we saw in the African slave trade and to which the abolitionists, a Christian movement based expressly on the kind of theology and biblical interpretation I'm going to be presenting here, sought to put an end. So, with that, let us begin. Now, it is true that in one sense the term slave is a correct term to describe what we observe in the Old Testament. Sort of. 
A slave, very generally, can be considered a person who is subject to another without absolute freedom to leave on one's own accord. In this very general sense, the Old Testament does condone slavery. That's right, I said it. Why dance around the issue? The question is whether or not this broad use of the term slave is really what we often conceptualize in the West post-New World African slavery when we normally use the term. What this biblical concept exactly looks like and entails, especially for the believer who looks to the Bible as a source for moral instruction, we're going to explore in the last installment of the series. But for now, let me affirm that in the general sense, it's true. The problem is, however, that we very rarely mean such an innocuous concept when we use the term slave or slavery. This is because the general meaning of the word as used in the Bible is more aptly described by other English terms such as servant, servitude, or bond servant, whereas because of the history in the West of the antebellum or New World African slavery, the terms slave or slavery have come to connote something much more violent and brutal and ruthless. When, as late modern Westerners, we hear the word slavery, the images that come to our mind are, the, are those of Roots, Django, and Harriet Beecher Stowe's classic novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, where Stowe states, quote, The legal power of the master amounts to an absolute despotism of body and soul, end quote. And again, quote, there is no protection of the slave's life, end quote. We may now even have images of human and sex trafficking that seems to be on the rise, or at least getting more press than it had in the past. Thus, it is precisely at this juncture that the question must be asked, are those really adequate parallels to or illustrations of what we find in the Bible? And even if they are too extreme, isn't any kind of slavery, no matter how mundane, even in this extremely general sense, still immoral? Is it not a moral fact that no human has the right to own another human as a piece of property, no matter how nonviolent such a practice is? Well, we're going to address, is that still the concept that's found in the Bible? There is actually a somewhat apt parallel in the colonial West to what we have in the Old Testament Israel, but it's not the African slave trade. The quote-unquote slavery that we find in the Bible is much more in line with the indentured servitude of colonists unable to pay their way to the colonies. This is not to be confused with the indentured servitude that followed the Civil War and was basically just functionally the same as slavery had been in the first place. In the colonization of early America, in order to pay the fare required for the journey, a hopeful aspiring colonist would attach themselves to a wealthy business owner or family to work for them to repay the debt of the fare. They would work in their households or in their businesses as apprentices, the equivalent of modern trade schools, until their debt was paid and then they were free to go. It's actually been estimated that nearly one-half to two-thirds of all colonists arrived as indentured servants in some type of capacity in this system. There were, no doubt, abuses of the system, with dishonest, dishonest businessmen making the ability to pay off the debt nearly impossible with the type of interest rates and, and, and payment structures that they would employ. But that itself is not an indictment of the entire system. 
as we're going to see, this is a much more adequate parallel to the quote-unquote slavery in the Old Testament than is New World African slavery. Because slavery in the ancient Israel, as we're going to see, should be considered more in line with economic debt servitude than with chattel race-based slavery. As we will see, the overwhelming majority of the texts relating to slavery were either directly or indirectly related to paying off some kind of debt or set in that context, or should be read in verses that address that context. In the Old Testament, the term commonly translated as master is yadon. Depending on the context, translating yadon is ma as master is, however, far too strong a rendition of it in many places. It's used to refer to the relationship of a father with his son, a husband with his wife, a ruler over his kingdom, an owner with his land, a manager over his hired employees, yes, hired employees, and a lord over his servants. To treat this as if it is categorically uh, refers to the kind of repressive despotism as described by Stowe is shallow and anachronistic indeed. We see this even further when we look at the term commonly translated as slave in the Old Testament. Uh, the term is yabed. Now, yabed can refer to a slave, but it can also, and often does, refer to a son, a daughter, a spouse, a hired employee, a prophet, a priest, a king, and to Israel herself. The reference seems to be to one who serves in some capacity and not to someone who is completely owned against their will to the cruel treatment and capricious whim of another. Paul Capan points out that even when the Bible uses terms like buy or sell or acquire, it does not refer to a person being body and soul property of their master. In fact, we still use this kind of language today. Think of Think of the professional athlete who still is bought under contract by owners and owners of the team and who can be traded at any time and who cannot freely violate their own contract without heavy personal and financial cost to themselves. Now, let us move on to looking at the role that debt servitude played in the economy of ancient Israel. This is a pivotal concept to grasp before understanding the meaning and purpose behind specific casuistic laws regarding the rights of debt servants and their owners found elsewhere in the Mosaic legal codes. In ancient times, there were no banks. There were no debt consolidation firms. There were no bankruptcy laws, no lines of credit, no job hunters, no recruitment firms, no payday loan stores, and no diversification of labor. When a person owed another person, they settled directly with that individual. Ancient Israel, like nearly every other ancient Near Eastern culture, was also a communal society. This meant that debt did not come to individuals. It came to whole families, clans, tribes, and nations. That is, their economic system was covenantal and not individualistic like ours is, though ours does still have some features of communal responsibility. If the father made poor business decisions, the entire family suffered. They didn't each have their own social security number with their own credit history. When a father went into serious indebtedness, he could either let his family lose their land and starve, or give the only collateral he had left at his disposal, himself and his family. 
As strange as it might sound, in many ways, debt servanthood was a protection from starvation and death for many of the poor in the ancient world. Unlike New World chattel slavery, debt servants were not kidnapped or forced to serve against their will in some type of race-based slavery. They would voluntarily offer themselves and their families as collaterals against their debt. As Leviticus 25, 47-48 says, If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells himself, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. Here, redemption basically means that their debts can be settled by someone else in the clan. If they failed to pay their debt, they would then go in service to the person to whom they owed the debt. In return, they would be able to work off their debt without going to debtor's prison or losing everything they had. Their family would still maintain their right and ability to work their own land while the debt was being paid off. This would frequently entail them being able to stay living in their own land, their own homes, work their own crops, etc., simply in the service now to some other owner rather than themselves. There was also the option that his kin could ransom or redeem him, which was basically to pay off his debt, and thus fulfill the debt requirements, or else he would be able to uh, he would be required to work a maximum of six years until the Sabbath year when debts were to be canceled. Although his land would frequently stay mortgaged until the year of Jubilee, a maximum of forty nine years if his family could not redeem it sooner, in which case all debts were canceled, all land returned to the original tribe that owned it, and all servants set free. This reveals several factors that are important to understanding servitude in ancient Israel. Firstly, is that it was voluntary. The debtor voluntarily chose to sell himself into slavery rather than allow himself and his family to starve, lose their family land, and perish. Secondly, it was not into perpetuity. We're going to explore more of the restraints of servitude later when we look at specific laws regarding debt servanthood in the Old Testament. So for now, let me merely point out that a person was never intended to be a servant for life, but rather for a maximum of six years unless they chose otherwise. In fact, what is surprising is that when we read the Old Testament, what we see is that many, if not most, of the indictments that God levied against Israel later in her history and which caused her to be sent into captivity in Babylon are precisely that it failed to practice these Sabbath law regulations. Not talking about just the Sabbath day, but Sabbath years. These were a year of absolving debt and thus ending all servitude in Israel. The primary example is found in Jeremiah 34, 8-12, where Judah is commended for failing to free their slaves after the six years were up. In verses 14-16, to 16, God states, quote, Every seventh year, each of you must free any fellow Hebrews who have sold themselves to you. After they have served you six years, you must let them go free. Your ancestors, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. Recently you repented and did what was right in my sight. Each of you proclaimed freedom to your own people. You even made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. But now you have turned around and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the male and female servants you had set free to go where they wished. You forced them to become your slaves again. End quote. 
God then goes on to state that their refusal to keep the law regarding the freeing of debt servants is the primary reason for the future exile of the people into Babylon. That is, their practice of slavery rather than the legal prescription of debt servitude was going to bring God's judgment against Israel and scatter them among the nations. As we're going to see, what is found more often than not is God in God's law is much more concerned with the freeing of servants and their fair treatment than the acquisition of them. This is because, as we'll see, God expressed his, his will for Israel and that it was that there would be, quote, There need to be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today, end quote, Deuteronomy 15, 4-5. If servanthood in Israel was primarily the result of poverty, but God's desire and law were geared to eradicate poverty in Israel, then it's quite clear that God's goal was also to eradicate servanthood in Israel. So if this was God's intention, then why not simply outlaw it like he does wearing clothes that blended two fabrics or eating uh, pork? It seems that God's commands were much more subversive than the atheist would have us believe, but also shows us that when the atheist tries to say that the Bible condones slavery in principle and in practice, they show just how little they actually understand the texts. Here, we should also remember that the purpose of God's revelation was not ultimately to completely overthrow all cultures and societies, but rather it was to draw people into a redeeming relationship with himself. I don't have time to develop this here, but it's really analogous to the fact that God's purpose in Revelation was not to give us new information about how the natural world works. That is, he's not there to reveal quantum mechanics. He's not trying to tell us how the heavens go, but how to go to heaven. In this case, the subversion happens in order to cause lasting change. Every single culture, every single society ran their cultures this way. And so God is planting seeds, planting commands, showing that God is interested in having no servants and having his people reflect on that and develop a society in which servanthood, servitude, slavery in principle is always going to be wrong. And that's what we achieved in Christendom. We'll get to that in episode four. When we compare servanthood in ancient Israel with that of slavery in the ancient Near Eastern culture, we see also four distinct differences. Firstly, in Israel, contrary to what the atheists assert, and I will show this when we get to the specific laws in the next episode, servants were not chattel. It wasn't race-based. It wasn't kidnapping or anything like that. That is, they were not rights-less property at the disposal of the master to do with as he desired, including to treat harshly and brutishly up to and including killing them. Dred Scott would not have been legal precedent in ancient Israel. Secondly, the rights of the owner over the servant were not absolute in Israel. They were not God to their servants. Unlike other nations, such as Egypt and Midian, an owner and a servant were both viewed as humans created in the image of God, and there were limits to the kind of treatment that a servant would be forced to endure. As we'll, and as we'll see in the next episode, they were actually pretty restrictive. 
They did not have the right over body and soul, as Stowe described, New World Masters, and which was true in nearly all other ancient Near Eastern societies. Thirdly, the servant in Israel kept his name, his family, and his social identity. This again was not the case in other ancient Near Eastern nations, and definitely was not the case in New World slavery, where the slave often had their name changed, was completely separated their family, and lost all social status or identity. Finally, we see that the allowance of debt servanthood in Israel was essentially for the protection of the poor. Yes, I said it, and we'll see why in a second. We're going to discuss the difference between approving and allowance shortly, but for this point we can see that this was not only used to allow families to pay off debt in a relatively short period of time. Remember, it's a six-year maximum as opposed to lifelong servanthood, but also that God set in place laws that not only required the freeing of servants during the Sabbath years, but also for the provision for the poor to keep them from becoming indebted and susceptible to selling themselves into servitude in the first place. The Mosaic legislation had certain laws in place that required the people to do a whole bunch of things to keep the poor from falling into starvation or total indebtedness. One such law is found in Leviticus 19.9-10 and then reinforced or reiterated again in 23.22 and Deuteronomy 24.20-21, where Israelites were not permitted to harvest for themselves from the corners of their fields so that the poor could glean the food from them. That is, it required that the edges of a person's farm or vineyard were to be cultivated but were not to be harvested so that the poor could come and harvest it for themselves and for their families. <clears throat> this means that the poor should have had a free-flowing supply of food such that the temptation to resolve their debt by entering into, servant, uh, into servanthood to avoid starvation and death was mitigated. Now, Imagine the outcry that would arise from the neocons at the encroachment of such quote-unquote socialistic welfare regulations if they occurred today. What would they say if the government said all agricultural and food-based companies had to give away 15% of their product for free to the poor? It would make the debate over the Affordable Care Act look like a friendly game of elementary tiddlywinks. And yet this is the type of liberal social uh, welfare that occurred in ancient Israel by the command of God to keep people from going into debt. In addition to this, Israelites were commanded to lend to their fellow Israelites freely, that is, without charging any interest. We can see this in Exodus 22:25, and then again in Leviticus 25, 36-37. On top of that, if the poor could not afford the more expensive sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs that were required for atonement at the temple, they were permitted to sacrifice much less costly sacrifices such as doves, and we see that in Leviticus 5, 7, and 11. In fact, any careful reading of the gospel accounts of Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers reveals that his concern is primarily with the abuse of the poor in their interactions within God's own house, the very place where the poor were supposed to be protected and cared for. Here, the money changers were basically swindling the poor to line their own pockets. Jesus was continuing God's desire that there would be no poor, no abuse of the poor, no oppression within God's own people.
to go even further. When a servant was finally freed, either after paying off their debt or because a Sabbath year had arrived, the owner was not simply to set them free, but they were actually to generously provide for them without a grudging heart. Deuteronomy 15.10, and we're going to see more of that in a second. This regulation would help ensure that a person would not be, so to speak, a repeat offender. They were set free with a certain bonus of livestock and grain and, and a little bit of finance to help them land on their feet and not to instantly live on debt again. This was simply unheard of in the ancient Near East and, and definitely not happening in the antebellum south. While some ancient Near Eastern cultures did have examples of mass debt cancellation, it was entirely sporadic. It wasn't every seven years or every 49 years, for example. And it was usually only at times when a new ruler came to power and wanted to start out with the favor of the people. In addition, the debt that was canceled by these rulers was not all the debt in the kingdom. It was only the debt that was owed to the crown. It wasn't all of the debt of all of the servants to any person like it was in all of Israel. Only in a liberal's wettest dreams would there be such a social welfare system put into place in the West to eradicate uh, the poor and the poverty and, and, and debt. At this point, I'd like to read Deuteronomy 15, 1-18 because it, it's the Old Testament enunciation of God's desire to eradicate poverty and thus debt servanthood in all of Israel. I know it's going to be a little bit long and I'm going to stop at a couple points to make a few comments, uh, but it's really important to read. Deuteronomy 15, 1-8 says, quote, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is to be the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Now let me just stop there for a second and point out two things. Firstly, some people might notice that this law did allow for um, extra taxation on the foreigner, but not for uh, the, the Israelite. Now, this is true. They were allowed to lobby uh, interest with foreigners. They weren't allowed to charge interest uh, with, with locals, uh, with, with, with the fellow Israelites. Um, now, for those people, are, well, that's unfair, all that kind of stuff. It's actually not. Every single nation uh, elsewhere would basically charge interest to everybody. Uh, Israel just didn't charge interest to its own people. Uh, beyond that, if you remember throughout the scriptures, Israelites are always commanded to treat 
their their sojourners in their land, people who are coming uh, to live in their land, to stay in their land, as if they were Israelites. Right? They were to treat them as if they were one of their own. This is, again, a subversive act where God's saying, look, according to the law, it's like a speed limit. You could go 50, but you don't have to. You could tax these sojourners, but you don't have to. And the more we get into develop the, the progress of revelation, the, the more the, the, the intention comes out in the prophets and then in full blossom in the teaching of Christ, uh, that, that we start teaching everybody exactly the same. Now, what we also see is that uh, if someone knows that the year of release or the Sabbath year is, say, next year, they're not allowed to not lend in that case. That case. They can't say, basically, I'm not going to get my investment back because I'm going to have to forgive all debts next year anyways, so I'm not going to lend anymore. God says that that is to be guilty of sin, right? and you're not allowed to do that. It doesn't matter whether it's a day before the seventh year or the day after the seventh year, uh, you're supposed to lend freely with an open hand. Now let's go back to the passage. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, you sh he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Again, let's stop right there. Notice that once someone's debt is paid off, they actually get a little bonus on their way out. They get furnished liberally from the person's flock, from their threshing floor, and from their wine press. They get sheep, grain, and wine. Let's go back. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if, you say, if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household. Since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and you, he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. Again, stop right there for a second. Notice the only time it becomes lifelong is when the servant asks to be such uh, a servant. It's because the, it says that they love him. They love the owner. They love the household. We're going to see later on that's because servants were considered part of the house. Notice it says because he is well off with you. He's well fed. He's well taken care of. He's part of the family. right? That's why they might choose to stay forever. It's very, very different than the type of servanthood that we're thinking. And, and he doesn't have to argue uh, you know, to try to convince people, oh, you know, your servants will love you. Like it's some type of propaganda. It's just an assumption. Look, he, it, you know, if he loves you, he can stay. It was an assumption that this type of thing happened and happened frequently. Uh, notice also that this applies to men and women. Right? There, there's, no, there's no gender preference or misogyny here. Uh, and, and, and the last the last little bit. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. End quote. 
Notice it says that half the cost of a hired worker. Well, what's interesting is that these people, they weren't working for free. It's not like they were just working, taking no income to pay off debt. They worked at a half salary. The half that they weren't getting paid, paid down their debt. The half that they were getting paid was salary for them. They were a worker in the fields or whatever the work was. They were getting a half salary. Now, just as an aside, uh, notice here again that there's there's the expectation that when the, the servant got their freedom granted, that some of the servants would stay. We're going to address this further in the next episode, but this alone should send up giant red flags when atheists present their interpretation of biblical passages of slavery as akin to brutal race-based chattel slavery. So, here we see God setting up laws so that Israel, unlike her neighbors, shall have no poverty and thus, hopefully, no servitude. That is the underlying desire of God for his people. However, because we live in the real world and the fallen world and people are, let's just say, fallen and sinful and less than perfect, there would also assuredly be poverty, even though God set up clear laws towards its abolition. Because of this, the Mosaic legal system also sets out laws not to endorse or idealize servanthood, but to control and regulate, to minimize and humanize it, and to set the precedent as a perpetual reminder that it was less than God's ideal. In fact, we see an analogous example of this same kind of legal toleration in Jesus' comments on divorce in the New Testament. In Matthew 19.8, Jesus says that God allowed divorce in the Old Testament not to idealize, endorse, or commend it, but, quote, because of your hardness of heart, end quote. That is, that God created a divorce law, not because he commended divorce and the destruction of the family, but because he knew the human condition, he knew human nature, and knew that even if he outlawed it, that due to social pressures and due to this being normal economic practice in all the cultures in the surrounding countries, people would do it anyway. And likely they would do it in a much more abusive and destructive way like the other nations. And so he wanted to set up certain protections uh, for, for uh, servants, in this case of Jesus, for women. This was, <clears throat> this was the purpose of the certificate of divorce allowed in the Old Testament, which maintained the woman's social status and allowed her to return to her home without being degraced as shameful or sinful, unlike most of Israel's neighbors. So too with the laws regarding servanthood in the Mosaic Law. God established laws that would protect those involved and set up other mitigating statutes that would diminish the volume of the debtors in the land, as we saw above. That is, God began to work in an act uh, it began to work in an act of great cultural and legal subversion that would culminate in an entire cultural shift in the way that future Christendom would come to view the dignity of the human and the immorality of slavery and servitude. The faithful Jew would see in the law that God cared for the poor and for the servant and longed for their freedom, and thus so should they. This actually has roots all the way back in Genesis 1, where all of humanity was created in the image of God, uh, unlike every other ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, where it was only the monarchs that were the divine image bearers and thus had any human right, dignity, or worth. In these cultures, it would have been unheard of 
for the slave to be considered a bearer of the image of God or the gods, let alone worthy of protection and respect and freedom, especially against a sovereign. And yet that's precisely what we find in Israel, that all people from the kings to the servants were image bearers. The king was no more special in the eyes of God than the carpenter. When David acted to kill Uriah to steal his wife, he wasn't given a free pass because, you know, it's good to be king, or because Uriah was conscripted, or even because he was a foreigner. For those who don't know, Uriah was a Hittite, and a Hittite was not an Israelite. That is, Uriah was a conscripted soldier and a foreigner. He was a servant and a non-Israelite. And yet David was judged by God. No king in Israel was above the law, and no servant was rightsless. Another good example is that of Ahab and Jezebel and their abuse of their power as monarchs to oppress the commoners such as Naboth. For more on this incident, you can read 1 Kings 21. I also have a paper on Jezebel that you can read on the blog that deals with part of this, uh, part of this incident. Now, <clears throat> we even see a stunning admission of this in the book of Job. Uh, in chapters 31 verses 13 to 15. Job is portrayed in the book as an extremely wealthy individual, and yet he says this about his servants. Quote, If I have denied justice to any of my servants, whether male or female, when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them did not the same one form us both within our mothers? End quote. What Job expressly stated was that God has made both the rich and the poor, the owner and the servant, and that God will side with the servant if the owner has treated him unjustly. Job knew that if he has denied justice to his servants, or if he has treated them in a way that they, that they were, had a valid grievance against him, that God would be on their side, that God would be their advocate and uphold their rights, and that he would have to stand before God as a criminal stands before a holy and righteous judge. This was precisely the sentiment and the theological understanding that was entirely lacking in every other ancient Near Eastern culture and most definitely missing in New World African slave trade and incidentally is completely lacking in the atheistic objection against the Old Testament that says, well, it condones slavery. In the next episode in this series, we're going to start to explore the specific passages in the Mosaic Law dealing with servanthood and investigate exactly what it was like to be a servant in Israel, and if the laws were a means to violence and oppression that many atheists make them out to be. Thank you again for joining us here on the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any concerns, comments, questions, commendations, condemnations, or compliments, feel free to visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com email us at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com or as always we'd love to have you stop by the Freed Thinker group on Facebook you can download this episode if you're listening to it streaming from the website you can download it on iTunes or listen to it on the Stitcher app thank you once again for joining us and have a great night and God bless <laughs>